Hello, and welcome to the second podcast of Hillbilly Lily, a podcast to celebrate Appalachian culture and to hear our local voices. My guest on this episode is a dear friend of mine. Her name is Jen Odie, a wonderful artist from Withville, Virginia. She has traveled throughout the United States, and I can't wait to hear all about her stories today. So, Jen, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jen Odie. I live here in Withville. I'm an artist. Um, I used to practice architecture, and now I'm a school teacher and a mom. Awesome. Well, I'm so happy to have you on here. I'm like, Jen, you're like my biggest fan in Withville. Like, I talk about you all the time. I'm like, Jen Odie is like my shit. Like, she's like the lady I'm always like talking about, like this mystic woman with her scarves and her cool hair and her awesome art and her ladies like in Rose Cottage. It's awesome. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, like, how did you start painting what like made you want to start becoming an artist um well when I was probably like seven years old I was taking um dance from Farron Smith actually here in Withville she had a art uh, dance school um right next to where Skeeters is and I hated it I, li- I love Farron but <laughs> I, I didn't I, know that Farron taught I, dance oh yeah she taught for a long time she had her own little school but what? um I, outside of running next door to Skeeters to buy crappy penny candy from behind the counter, um, I hated going to dance. Um, It was something my mom felt like I needed to do to be a well-rounded young lady. Um, So I went for about a year and a half, maybe two years, um, and just, I just never really cared for it. In fact, I was the kid, you know, they tell you if, if something, if a prop falls off of you during the dance recital, just keep dancing. I was the one where the crown fell off my head. And of course, I've been over to pick it up and it was like dominoes, you know. Oh my God, really? <laughs> oh yeah, I was a kid. Um, and I've always kind of been my best friend in high school's mom, Rosemary, used to say I was Miss Grace because I literally had no grace. I was a total klutz. I still kind of am. Oh, me too. Um, I, I just fall down standing still. So anyway, I remember coming out of dance one day, getting in the car, and my mom, who had a really good fr- friend who no longer lives here anymore, her name's Pam Lucas, um, Pam is a prolific artist, just super talented. Um, but she used to live over in Little Creek in Bland County. And I don't know how she knew that I drew, but I had all I, I had been drawing pretty much my whole young life. I, I always joke with people and say I was born with a crayon in my hand. But Pam had said something to my mom about teaching me how to paint, how to how to draw and paint better and And so when I got in the car that day, mom was like, what do you say about quitting dance and you go paint with Pam every week, once a week instead? Because Pam had just opened an art studio. It's actually up, it used to be up next to where Willis Chiropractic is, where studio is, where Tammy's Studio 40 hair salon is. She had a whole art studio on that ground floor. And so... Me and actually Abby Wilner. Really? Yep. And um, I'm trying to think the other. Mary Beth Hummerkaus. All these girls that I went to high school with, that, um, we all ended up riding the bus and going there to learn how to paint. And I just, I learned the Bob Ross method. From, really? I did from Pam Lucas. Um, that's kind of how she taught us. Um, it was kind of the precursor to what paint parties are today. Um, most of our lessons when we first started, she would stand in front of the room with her easel and walk us through step by step. And oftentimes, again, it was like she used Bob Ross type landscapes to kind of get us introduced to acrylics at first. And then we eventually moved over into oil painting over time. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, sometimes we would go out to her place and paint. She had a big swimming pool, and we would set up around the swimming pool and paint um, with her 
hundreds of cats and her <laughs> Great Dane that would stand between us and the cats. It was and it was really awesome. She had a tree farm. Her, she and her husband did out in Little Creek for a long time. Really, but that's how I got started. Is I started painting with Pam, and then um, once I got into high school, I was playing sports all the time. I was in the band, and I just kind of drifted away from that. And I really didn't. I, I was still drawing, but I. I didn't really do much painting in high school, per se. And it wasn't until I went to architecture school at Tech um, at right after high school that I kind of wandered back into my love of painting. Um, did you take art classes at Tech? I did. I took a few art classes. We had a, actually, we had a pottery studio in the architecture school. We had a wood shop, a metal shop, um, a, like a graphic arts, like printing shop. And we had, um, what else? Like, we had all this, it was like the most magical, amazing place to go to school. Um, we had almost, and, and dark rooms. I did a lot of black and white photography when I was in college um, through the architecture school. Um, and we had, we had pretty much almost everything that the art school had. And really? Yeah, it was really neat. Um, so I did a lot of classes through there, and then... My last year or two of school, I ended up kind of just keeping a canvas at my desk <laughs> and set up because I would get to these like really like difficult parts of these projects that I was doing. My last your last two years of architecture, you're kind of creating projects for yourself and seeing them from start to finish, um, and. And, and the first, the second of the last year, you're basically doing a practice thesis. And then the last year, you're doing your thesis project, which is what you're setting up for yourself. So I would get to these plateaus in my project where I was just literally beating my head against the wall trying to figure out what I was going to do next, how I was going to present it. Um, was I going to pour concrete? Was I going to draw it? Was I, you know, how, how was I going to do all that? And we didn't really use computers at the time. This was kind of pre-computer-generated yeah. Even though, like, it was around, tech really discouraged us using AutoCAD, even though I already knew how to use CAD because I had, like, the world's greatest drafting teacher at the high school. That I was the first kid to do computer-aided drafting in Withville and with County Public Schools. I took a night course that he had me take when I was in high school, and the school, school, school district paid for it so that I could compete with FFA. But anyway... Um, everything was just really hands-on, but I kept a canvas next to my desk, and I would just kind of work on something periodically. It would take me an entire semester to a year to complete a single piece, but it was there to kind of just break the monotony of whatever I was working on with my projects. At the time. What would you paint? Um, the one I remember the most, which I honestly don't know where it is now. I sold it. I don't I, and I can't remember where who I sold it to, which is kind of crazy to think about. <laughs> but um, it was this abstract of a piece of wood, and it was this really gnarled piece of, like, driftwood. And I painted it in shades of blue and gold. Um, and I just remember kind of taking it apart piece by piece. Um, and that was my last year of school. So between my second to the last year of architecture school and my last year of architecture school, I kind of drifted off to New Mexico and worked for an architect out there. I just decided on a whim, hey, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to get in my car, my crappy little Ford Festiva. <laughs> well, that's what you need to do, right? Drive across <laughs> the country, and I lined up a job and moved out there for the summer. And when I was out there started meeting artists and finding a community going on artisan tours. They had these amazing artisan tours. And at the time up to that point, I had been working with Pam and all that. And all I really knew was doing portraits and doing landscapes and doing animals and pet portraits and stuff like that. And I had never really thought about art as kind of a story at that point. It was always just really one-to-one. And so when I came back to school, I set that piece up, and I really, in earnest, put a lot of energy out there to the universe um, that I wanted my work to start telling a story because all the work that I saw, whether it was pottery or painting or metalwork or whatever I was looking at um, in New Mexico, was 
uh, highly stylized. Everybody kind of had their own thing. Um, and it all kind of told a story. And so I really just, I wanted my work to tell a story. And that's kind of the point where I took apart this piece of wood mentally and visually and kind of messed around with it and turned it into this landscape, actually, um, this like really abstract landscape. And then from there, um, I had some things happen on, on a camping trip where it was the first time I had really experienced this all all-encompassing feeling of oneness in nature. I'd spent my whole life in nature with my dad, but I had a, a, a very intense experience on the beach in North Carolina um, during a major thunderstorm, which, <laughs> I, you know, I still am like, I can't believe we didn't get electrocuted. <laughs> but at that point, it's like things just, just kind of started happening, and I just kind of opened myself up to... To the, to the universe, basically, yeah. right? Yeah. Just letting it kind of take, giving you signals, like yeah. letting you letting it talk to you. You know, I feel like, have you ever watched Beetlejuice? Oh, yeah, I love where, it. Where they're like, um, you can see ghosts, but people choose not to. Absolutely, and, I, and I believe that. And for me, it's, it's, it's nature, it's the earth. Like, I feel like she is who is kind of directing my brush most of the time. You know, some people talk about the feminine aspect of God, and I, and I believe that that is who I am kind of attuned with and where the messages kind of come from. And at first it was like I would see things in nature and then try to emulate them with paint. Um, and then over time I think my intuition kind of grew, and then intuitively I would just pick up things energetically like visually, um, they would come through and I would paint them. And now it's like the stories just kind of happen. The it's stories just, of your paintings? Yeah. Do you think that they're like you're like a one painting tells a story or multiple paintings tell a story or a story of your of a part of your life that you're a part of right now? Or? It's, a, it's a little of all of those things. Like oftentimes, like right now, my life is so busy between teaching school and raising Oscar and, you know, having my husband and, and then also, um, you know, running my business with Rose Cottage. So it's like, it, it kind of comes in spurts. And so I just snatch it out of the ether and paint it. But I have had times like back in 2012, I did a huge, um, body of work that was all completely related to this healing process that I was going through. I was going to therapy at the time and just really trying to deal with the darkness. I actually had a friend call me out in Alaska right before I moved here. She's like, your paintings are really pretty. And and my therapist actually told me this exact, it was crazy. It was like the exact same thing. Huh. Your paintings are really pretty, but like, have you ever painted your darkness? Oh. And I was like, oh my, it's like, um. like, how do you do that? So, <laughs> so when I started therapy, my therapist kind of asked me the same question when I first moved back to Southwest Virginia. And I was like, she's like, your pictures are really pretty, but like, where's your sadness? Yeah. You're in here <laughs> telling me your deepest, darkest issues. And like, I don't see any of that in your work. Like, have you ever thought about working through some of your stuff this way? And I was like, well, it's scary. That's exactly what I said. And it's what I told my friend in Alaska. I was like, I don't know if I am mentally, emotionally prepared to like, look at that, like actually like literally look at that. And so when my therapist challenged me, I was like, okay, I think I need to do this. And so <laughs> you're I brave. Did, yeah, I did an entire series of, paintings that were extremely dark but at the same time like extremely beautiful um can you tell me about some of those yeah the compositions are really dark um like the, the actual paint the the, the yeah. colors are really dark but then there's like this like image of like a female image like a feminine image that kind of like peeps through the darkness in this like wash um, 
and then there'll be some additive element with each one. And then like each one also had the moon in it. Cause I feel like the moon is like just enough light dependent on what phase, even, oh my even God, like yeah. the new moon, you know, to illuminate what you need to see. And so there was this whole, and, and, mm. and it's also part of the sacred feminine, like the, the phases and the 28 days, you know, between your, in your cycle. And so, that was also a part of it. But there were paintings that there was one um, called The Cloak of Invi Invisibility that dealt with my ability to kind of shapeshift my whole life to try to not stand out hmm. when I was younger because I had gone through a lot of trauma um, with my dad and just trying to like not stand out not stand out and yeah not, and, and, not and, noticed. I and I covered myself up I wore like boys clothes and just really covered myself up and kind of hid my femininity from everyone for a long time including myself I feel like I've, mm -hmm. I've struggled with the balance of masculine and feminine energy my entire life but this painting was it was a lot about that because I was dealing with a lot, some of this in my therapy. And, and so foxes, along with being tricksters, are known for their ability to blend in and be invisible. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so it's this woman's form, and you can see her breasts, and, but you can't see her face because there's this fox shroud over the top that covers her face. And so mm. she's kind of looking through the fox's eyes at the world, but they can't really see, see her. her. So it was that idea. And so you really only see this kind of like grayish wash of this body, but the fox itself is very bright. And so the woman just kind of disappears. Huh. And then I, God, Jen. I had another piece from that series. Um, I'm trying to think. Where toward the end, so that was more toward the beginning of that series. And toward the end of that series, I had one, and my sister-in-law has it, um, where I feel like I was starting to move more into embracing my feminine self a lot more. And, and so you really see the shapes and curves of the female form. And then there's this beautiful red bird that kind of comes up from between the legs and along the shape of the body. So And it's almost like a phoenix of sorts um and so i did a series of like 12 of these paintings and all of them were very dark but very beautiful and so when i did my artist statement for that it kind of talked about how when you are ready to like stare your darkness square in the face like really get into that shadow work like the beauty that can actually come from that really dark scary place and um so I hung all that in a gallery on the mall in Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because <laughs> the majority of the people on opening night that really resonated with those pieces were not females. They were males. And it wasn't a sexual thing at all. It was, it was so intriguing. I had several men of... Uh, really various ages and ethnicities like approach me about that body of work and how profoundly moved they were by it <laughs> I wish I could see it yeah. I I can't even you're very brave for doing that I mean I feel like for me it's so hard to like paint my darkness or but how paint. old are you I'm 19 yeah, I'm 20 exactly so I was basically how old was I when I did that Oscar was, I was 34 years old when I did that, 34, 35 years old. So I feel like I just got tired of dealing with the bullshit and letting the bullshit from my past, like, control. Your future. Yeah, control my future, control my, my choices that or I was your making. your behaviors. And, and it was very healing. I, I did those pieces over basically over the course of a year, along with some other stuff that I did while I was still with the same therapist. I was with her for like two and a half years, but, mm -hmm. um, and I'm so glad that I did because I really feel like it, it made it. Did it heal? Do you think it healed a little bit or? At oh least? yeah. I think it definitely brought to light some things that 
I don't know if I would have dealt with them any other way, you know. Well, you know, most people, when they go through, I mean, I feel like for artists, the hardest part is painting trauma. You can paint as much beautiful things as you want, yeah, yeah. but most most people resonate with the things that, in, in, you know, reflect your feel, the feeling of what you're going through or what you have gone through. I mean... Let's look at like Francis Bacon, for example, with his pieces. I mean, yeah. they're extremely dark and extremely profound and just really terrifying. And but people that people love his work for that, or Picasso, or you know, we can go on and on, or Van Gogh, for example, yeah. with his landscapes. But they invoke the lo- like his loneliness or his mm-hmm. sadness that he was going through. There's one I mentioned it before. But um, there's a field. I actually did an homage to it. But that yellow field up there, mm-hmm. that one was to express his loneliness because his friend Gauguin had left him and left him with his, his only Van Gogh in France in this art school. And he was so deeply saddened by it. And after that painting, he cut off his ear. Yeah. Mm. And so he was just so lonely and by himself. And so he painted it that way, but people love that. I mean, yeah. they resonate with it, um, with that, with that feeling. Oh yeah. Cause everybody's got stuff. I don't, I don't everyone care. has junk. Everyone, yeah. everyone has baggage. Uh, so that's the thing. A person yet yeah, that didn't have some kind of trauma they were still dealing with, you know, and, that's, and, and that's you what makes really, you human too. Yeah, And you never really lose that. It's always kind of there. It's how do you use that? As a, as a method for healing and for helping others and kind of helping you to spin things into a more positive perspective in your life? And, and how do you use it to understand your triggers and what makes you behave the way you do when you're not in a good way? And, <laughs> and, and recognizing that and learning how to deal with it and cope with it and, and head it off at the pass as often as you can, you know? I, I try really hard to paint, like, you know, the thing, you know, really, you know, bad, like, trauma stuff that I've been through. But it's really difficult, um, you know, and figuring out, well, is this really what I'm feeling or is this not really what I'm feeling? Because, you know, maybe it's because I paint the window all the time and I'm like, um, people are watching me. Um, what is this lady painting all the, what is this lady painting? This doesn't make any sense. Oh, that's not a barn. Um, (laughs) but one thing that I really want to portray, what, what things I really want to start working on is my dreams I've realized that I have extremely weird, uncomfortable dreams that I have. I've always had weird, freaky dreams, um, but recently I've like been writing them down. I mean, I remember a lot of them, but I really want to paint them and see what comes out, or at least I guess the feeling that I got from those dreams. Because, yeah. you know, most dreams I feel like you remember are usually unhappy or like very have a lot of anxiety, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, that's what I want to work on soon. I have this one painting that I want to work on where I had this dream. I'm at my, our farm, my family's farm in Floyd, and it's like this ye- little tiny yellow farm. It's super small. It's like the tiniest little place, but it's in the middle of nowhere in, in Little Indian Valley in Floyd, and there's, like, no cell service, and I have this reoccurring dream of me going there and I like am there it's dark and there's snow like it's just snow 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 everywhere just like tons of it and like I walk out on the porch and it's barren barren land snow and it's like something's the moon I guess is illuminating it so I can kind of see there doesn't really seem like there's trees it just but and this real place there's trees and there's like a you know hills and stuff you can see it but it's just like flat barren snow and when I go inside I see this I see this frame picture of um of this rope painting I I don't even know it's not a painting it's just art with rope just tied rope put mounted in a frame does that make sense 
where you can like touch it and like pull the rope out. Oh, weird. Yeah, and there's like loops, and I like put my hand in the loop, and like I get sucked into this loop, and like I come through, and I like go into this loop, and then I'm like in white. There's like nothing. (laughs) And I woke up and I was like, oh God, what's going on? What's going on? That noggin. Deprivation. (laughs) What? Some kind of deprivation. Probably. Who knows? I I remember it so vividly, but I want to paint my farm in the snow, like like more Dali surrealism type things, but... I don't know where I was going with this, but I feel like it's very dark. It has something to do with my deep psyche that I haven't. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I uh, worked with a woman, um, a shaman up in Alaska, one of the shamans that I worked with there. Her name's Amy, and she uh, she actually went to a Jungian school to learn how to interpret people's dreams. Mm. And so... Occasionally, if I have a weird one, I'll shoot her a message and be like, okay, I don't really know what the deeper meaning of this is. Can you help me out here? And, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's crazy what you can learn about yourself in, in, in all kinds of situations like that. You know, so. Has she interpreted any of them that were really fascinating to you? Yeah, she has. Yeah. And then, you know, she does like journey work and stuff like that which I did with her and then like vision quests I did a vision quest with she led a vision quest one time that I went on what is that what is that what is a vision quest so in native like lore and and people still do these kinds of things um they would send you know oftentimes usually it was the boys they would send the boys out to have a vision quest and they would leave with basically what they had on their bodies out into the wilderness for several days. And sometimes they would have a specific task that they would have to do before they could come back. Like they would have to kill a buffalo or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But with, with nothing but what they've got on, like they would have to figure it out. But (laughs) this vision quest, um, we basically had to prepare um, for several days. We made prayer ties um, and you, you do them in the colors of the medicine wheel, which are gold and red and black and white. Mm-hmm. And each of those is symbolic of a specific direction, north, south, east, west. And each of those directions has certain medicine in it um, and dealing with, you know, the seasons and animals and plants and all kinds of things. But we would we basically spent several days just making prayer ties and putting intentions into those prayer ties. And which would be this big ring mm-hmm. that we would ha- that we would sit in of protection, <clears throat> and then you're at, you, we were we were out there for three days by ourselves. The closest person to me was a mile away, <laughs> um, so we all had our own kind of sit spot out. And this is Alaska, so yeah. What the so it's intense, and so I went out there with nothing really, and had to create a safe space, uh, shelter within my circle. And it was really eye opening. It was really, it was really awesome. And in fact, the day before I left, I went to see a friend of mine who had been attacked by a bear. uh, (laughs) Only in Alaska. On a fishing trip. He actually wrote a book about it. It's really good. Really? Yeah. It's called Beyond the Bear. My friend, Dan Big, Dan Bigley, Big Dan Bigley. He's awesome. Anyway, um, I went to see him at the hospital because he was still in recovery. Oh, my God. And asked him to basically say a prayer, you know, that the bears would not come around. Because I was really scared. Yeah. That, especially having helped him, you know, at the time try to deal with what it, the aftermath of being attacked. And so... While we were sitting there, so Dan lost his eyes during the attack, and he had they had to wire his whole head pretty much together, so he couldn't talk, but he had a dry oh erase God. board. We had, it was the first first day he was able to go outside, and we were in the courtyard at the hospital, and this little chickadee landed in the bushes next to us, and 
Dan is like really into nature and he knew knows like a ton of like animal calls and bird bird calls and so this little chickadee was like sitting in the bush and made a noise and he wrote down chickadee on the board and we were just kind of chatting and I brought up the vision quest and my concern and asked him to just kind of say a prayer and this that and the other and I left so while I was on the vision quest it was really amazing and this is like nature is such a, a major mirror for me and I think it is for everyone it's whether and it's whether or not you're cognizant of it or not I think that matters but while I was sitting there um this bear showed up oh my gosh really? and the other thing that happened though which was really amazing was I knew where the bear was the whole time because hundreds of chickadees showed up and it and they were like fussing at it and like I could hear it lumbering around in the woods and I knew and then as it would move to a different spot they would all move over like uh like the canary and like so the, they kept they basically kept me in the know as to where the bear was the bear was and I just sat and prayed and hoped for the best because there wasn't really anything I could do and were so, you alone yeah I was the nearest person a mile away a mile away okay. and so I uh I just kind of wrote it out and trusted the birds and and it worked out just fine but Basically, you come from that experience, and having had that particular experience and some other experiences while I was on this quest, you really, like, get to know yourself. And that's, that's kind of the point, is, like, allowing nature to show you things about itself and yourself and how it mirrors so much of who you are and vice versa, because it's all, we're all one. And so... Um, and that's what it's about. It's like, what are, what are you there to learn about at the time? It's so poetic. And, um, and then you come from that experience, and I spent a lot of time after that just kind of writing and drawing and, and trying to digest and integrate what I learned from that experience. And it was one of the coolest things I've ever done, and I highly recommend it to anybody that would be up for doing something like that. But Amy would, you know, she helped us kind of interpret some of the things that we experienced on the intuitive level and, and the psychic level with dealing with nature in that particular element. And she, again, she went to a Jungian school. She's this like really <laughs> rad, like dream interpreting <laughs> goddess and super cool human being and shaman. So that is so amazing. I, you know, I wanted to ask, you mentioned chickadees and, I wanted to ask, do you know anything, the significance of a chickadee in animal medicine? I should. I don't know off the top of my head what it is, though. But they are very, I do know that they are very hardy birds because they live in Alaska. Even at 50 below, you'll see chickadees, which is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. I would see them all winter long up there. And they're very sweet, cute little birds, but they're also very tough and Party. The day my grandmother died, I was in my apartment alone, and I know I talk about the birds that come and check, you know, see me, the blue jay. Yeah. There's a cardinal that's coming by a little bit, he's saying hi to me a lot, um, and the day my grandmother died, a chickadee came and um, sat on my windowsill for about five minutes and just stared at me. Well, that's cool. And, um... I can, I, I can look it up and send you. I would love I would love to know that. Um the information. It was it was really I was like, well, hello. Because after no after just getting to know you so well and you're a rad goddess. Oh, and getting to know you and talking and just uh, the my favorite I meant I gotta go I gotta come back to Rose Cottage and do some more pottery because my favorite oh, thing yeah. was, you know, doing pottery with you and us just talking. Um but I don't know. I, 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 I really. It really made me. It, it was pretty emotional. I just was staring at this bird for about five minutes, sitting in my window. So my my window open. And it was in April, and I was just watching him. And he was just looking at me. I think it was a. I think it was a male chickadee. I don't know, yeah. or because it was really pretty. It was super beautiful. Yeah. Um. But it was so great. I. I was like, man. 
wish Jen could tell me what's going on right now. <laughs> Where's her book? Yeah, I, th- yeah, I think that, that animals are, you know, I feel like energy is constant. You can't destroy, you know. Nor, nor, nor create it. it. But it just kind of transforms. And, you know, my grandmother said that she would come back as a bird. And, and so I, I'm a big believer, believer in that because every major family triumph or despair like there's been a bird there you know there was a bird in the gym when my aunt's basketball team won the state championship (laughs) you know there was a bird in the gym when I graduated high school um when Nate and I got married there was one one single cardinal in the or bird on the whole island at Hungry Mother State Park and it sat right above us during our ceremony um, when, through the whole thing, <laughs> and so I know it was her, like, she was there, so I totally believe that. I believe that, too. Um, I feel like birds are always there when I, when anything is really happening, good or good or bad, there's mm-hmm. always birds, and I really resonate with animals, too. I, I was also going to ask you, um, you may have mentioned it, but I, like, way, like, a few months ago, do you, um, do you, um, does that entail like spirit animals or do you feel like you resonate with an animal, like when you paint or anything like that? Or do you go through phases? I, I, th- I go through phases and I think most people do where they'll resonate with a certain type of animal more so than others. And generally speaking, it's whatever I need to know in the now. It's interesting, like since I went to, South Dakota last year I've been absolutely obsessed with buffaloes and I've been putting on pottery I've been painting them I've got a huge buffalo painting that I'm working on right now and um why'd you go to South Dakota to travel Mm. and I and buffaloes are all about abundance and Mm -hmm. so I feel like for me this buffalo is trying to help me reconcile my issues with abundance and and what I mean by that is you know, there are certain things I've wanted to do my whole life, <clears throat> one of which is to just do my art and do art with other people. And right now, you know, I love my job. I love my daytime job. But I would love to just be able to do Rose Cottage. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm all You're fine. Um, do Rose Cottage all the time because that's what I really love. And But there's this, like, certain amount of fear that and I think it's normal. I think most people do before taking like a big plunge into doing something. Mm-hmm. That's solely for yourself. Um, yeah, it's hard being self. Well, selfish, especially sure. when you've got a kid at home and you know you we've got two mortgages and all that. It's like you know for the financial end of things. And I think that's for me is like it is it's the abundance part. It's like there's this part of me that still is telling myself that story that. I can't, I can't just do that. I can't just be the artist, you know, and so, but I'm getting there. And I think the buffalo is, you know, getting back to what you're saying, I, I, I think it changes over time for people. Yeah. I, I think some people, most people may also have some overriding um, animal that may, you know, be their kind of main totem, I guess, if you want to call it a totem. I a totem that's the but, word yeah you know, I, I hesitate to, to use that because I'm not Native American but um and I don't want to like you know adopt Pro- somebody you know somebody else's culture here but um I do think that you know we oftentimes have some kind of overriding thing that you know just like our stars with you know the constellations and with um astrology you know I think the animals come into play that way too um, but I also think that things shift and change over time. You know? Yeah, yeah. What do you do? You have like an overall animal that you resonate with? Uh, I have for many, many years, more than a couple of decades, been very into like blackbirds, you know, corvids, which are you know ravens, magpies, crows, things like that. There's something it's very about Edgar Allan Poe esque. It is, but they also, you know, in in Native Alaskan lore, the raven is who brought the sun to the earth. Oh, yeah. You know, and so it's that balance of darkness and light. And so I think that's, it comes back to my 
constant struggle with finding the balance. Mm. You know, some of it's like masculine feminine balance and some of it is, um, I feel like I've, I've achieved a pretty good level of balance when it comes to my mental emotional state and dealing with things. I don't let things completely like overtake. Yeah. Just waylay me like I used to. And, and I can even, you know, even when it's difficult, kind of be able to step back objectively and be like, okay, this is temporary. We're going to get through this. I need to deal with this part, blah, 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 you know, like, um, but I think it's, it's the balance. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I wanted to ask you, how did you end up in Alaska? So when I was in architecture school, I had, again, between my second to the last year and my last year of school, I went to New Mexico, had worked for an architect out there, had fully anticipated going back to work for George State, and he and I had already talked about me coming back, finishing my internship. He was approaching retirement, and he was like, you know, already kind of alluding to me possibly eventually moving into either running his business or, you know, who knows. So I had it fully intended on going back there, came back to school to finish my thesis year. And so every five years at Virginia Tech at the architecture school, they have the Ferrari Symposium. So let me backtrack a little bit. So the Virginia Tech Architecture School was started by a man named Olivio Ferrari, who was part of the Bauhaus, original Bauhaus school in Germany. And in World War II, when the Nazis took over, mm. a lot of the students and the faculty got the heck out because they did not want to be a part of yeah a part of the the evil death machine that was. Adolf Hitler was creating and so they all fled Germany and a lot of them came to the United States and most of the top architecture programs in the, in the country were started by faculty or students from the Bauhaus school and so our school was one of those Virginia Tech and so every five years they would have this Ferrari symposium and all these alumni would come back mm. and speak about all the cool and amazing wonderful things they were doing in the world and and do these like workshops and lectures and things so all of my friends were going to the cool graphic arts workshop that this one <laughs> architect was doing that was pretty awesome I saw on the list that there was this dude coming from Alaska that was going to talk about his work, and I had always been intrigued with Alaska, Alaska and the North. My brother and I shared a bedroom when we were little kids until I was probably like 10, and we would read National Geographics and kind of dream about these places that we wanted to travel to, and Alaska was definitely near the top of the list, and so I was Alaska's like, I'm going to go amazing. check this out, like, let's see what this guy's up to. So I went, and... He was a profoundly awesome um, architect, like amazing designer, had won national and international awards and this, that, and the other. I walked out of the... I didn't even talk to him at the time because I was so blown away and I I just didn't have the confidence at the time to just walk up and talk to this guy. His name was um, Mike Mintz. Mm -hmm. So I left the lecture, went and found my friends to go eat lunch, and I was like, I'm not going back to New Mexico, guys. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm moving to Alaska. I'm gonna go work for this guy, and they're like, "Oh no, you're not gonna do that." I'm like, "No, that's, <laughs> I'm, I'm totally gonna do that." And so I sent him a resume in at the end of January because I was gonna be graduating in May, and um, we started this like really kind of long because there was no way, there was no way I could go to Alaska. I was finishing up my thesis. I was putting myself through school and working on all the time on top of doing architecture school, which is like, you know, crazy amounts of time to begin with. Oh, yeah. And doing my thesis. And so there was just no way. And I couldn't afford to fly up there. So we just started this conversation via email and the phone between me and him and um, the other employees in his office, which he had like three or four other employees and and so it was like this three-month-long interview. <laughs> it was awesome. And we all got to really know each other pretty well. And at the end of three months, he said, 
I'd really like for you to come work for me. So I was like, yeah, I'll do that. And so once I got my thesis project done, I bought a truck, loaded my dog up and (laughs) my best friend and drove her to Davis, California. And then... You drove to Alaska. Then, well, I drove to Bellingham, Washington, and then took the ferry... Up to Alaska. Alaska, (laughs) And then finished the drive. I still had about a thousand miles to drive from Haines Junction all the way to Anchorage. Because Alaska's like ginormous but um, yeah but that's basically how I ended up there I had only intended on being there for like a couple of years two or three years to do my internship and then come back down south I didn't know where and I ended up just I loved it so that's amazing I ended up saying I, I lived in Anchorage for about two and a half years and then um, moved to Girdwood which is about an hour south of Anchorage in, in a ski village on the Turnigan Arm part of the Cook Inlet and lived down there for three years. And then I met Nate and moved to Fairbanks for really? five years. What was, what was it like living in Alaska? Um, it was awesome. Like I Anchorage mean, is a weird city. Anchorage is like the size of Roanoke basically. And it's very transient. There's a lot of, if, if you're not an old homesteader family that started homesteading in the 1950s there, you were kind of nobody. You were, your name was Mud because <laughs> there's so much military there. There's multiple different branches of the military that have bases right near Anchorage or in Anchorage. And a lot of people that's kind of their like jumping off point in Alaska, they'll start there and then kind of jump off to the next adventure. And so there's a lot of transience that happens. So when you get there, it's a very lonely city, again, if you don't know anybody. I mean, in the winter, too. Exactly. Like... So Anchorage kind of sucked. It was cold, and, and it was, but it was like... Dry cold? No, it was wet cold like here. So it definitely felt Jesus. cold. It was Oof. coastal. Um it was, I just never really met my people there. I just kind of... Doing your thing. Just kind of... Did my own thing, did a lot of art. And, and I, I mean, I hung out with people, but I never really connected. Um, and then I ended up moving to Girdwood after I met a group of women from there. Got, I got an invite to a women's circle there, and I just absolutely loved it. And so I ended up moving down there. Um, for three years and it's beautiful there it's very mountainous um it's right there on the cook inlet you can see the belugas and the really and the killer whales come in and um, it's the second highest tide in the world the highest tide in the world is like right near nova scotia what and so the second highest tide which is a bore they're bore tides which i don't know if you know what a bore tide is no but (laughs) so the turnigan arm like literally when the tide goes out all of the water in the turnigan arm for the most part goes out to sea and and the turnigan arm is like as big as like the biggest lake you've ever been to it's gigantic so all of that water goes out part of the day and then when it comes in it comes in and it's like a wall of water and so these guys would put on dry suits and get surfboards out and ride it's like riding a giant wave all the way back in. And oh my god. You could literally if you're if you're not frightened, you could walk across the whole thing. But it's got like silt that will suck you in like quicksand and then you can't get out. Lots of people have been known to get stuck there. I remember when I first moved there, there was a couple that had been like four-wheeling on the silt on the the mud flats they call them down oh, there. Oh yeah, no, I know what they th- got stuck. They she die. got stuck. They tried to get, they give, they'll give you a pipe that sticks up out of the water and you basically breathe through a pipe. If you don't die from hypothermia in the t- at, at the time, you just have to wait it out and then maybe you'll live and maybe you want. And Did they live? Nope. Oh my God. So yeah, crazy town, right? But anyway, second highest tide of the world, very cool place. Very cool people. I had a blast living there. Ski village, so skiing and everything. But Did you go skiing a lot? Not a lot because I'm not into high rates of speed. I did a lot of cross-country skiing, which I like, mm-hmm. and hiking and stuff. I love skiing. I'm a, such a big skier. But then I met Nate and moved to Fairbanks, which is interior Alaska, and that's where it's like 50 below come, come, how did, come how, the end of January. How did you meet Nate? Um, he came into a, so I was in between architecture jobs and I was, cause I just left Mike's office and I was living in Girdwood 
and I had been kind of helping a contractor with some drawing and stuff at the time, but I had this little part-time job. I was living the artist's dream. I was, like, living in a squatter's cabin in the middle (laughs) of nowhere, chopping wood, hauling water, working in a coffee shop, baking baked goods, because I had had a bakery job when I was in college. And so I had some experience. And so the coffee girl didn't show up that day. And so I had to do coffee and Bake. do the baked goods. And this, like, really hot dude with long hair and <laughs> bright, sparkling eyes came in. And and I took one look at him and looked beside the door and looked at him and looked beside the door. Because right beside the door was this rack of CDs. And there was one that said Appalachian Folk Grass. And I was like... Appalachian folk grass. Are you Nate Montgomery? And he's like, I am. And he asked me what I was doing that night, and I was like, not hanging out with you. Because <laughs> I was like, in my mind, because I had gone through like a really, really traumatic experience with a boy like a couple of years before, and I was like, I still wasn't really dating and wasn't really into. No, and then my best, boys, one of my best girlfriends was standing there, and when he walked out, and she's like, what are, are you, you doing? <laughs> like, what, what are you thinking? He came in two other times after that. Really? Two other times to see if I was going to come. And are I you available? Like, Fine, I'll come. I'll meet you there. And so I called all my girlfriends. I was like, you guys have to all come. Because I'm not going there by myself. But we ended up hitting it off. But that's how I met him. <laughs> I made his coffee. <laughs> I've been making it ever since. <laughs> that sounds like how my parents uh, met. My mom was working in Roanoke at the mall, like at an express type of store. And she worked there. And my dad went and bought a coat. And he really thought my mom was cute. And came back like the next day to see if she was there she wasn't there he like left a note for the other lady from my mom came back again and bought another coat (laughs) that's awesome like for my mom was like you want to go shoot pool down and like down and like whatever go like shoot billiards or whatever and she was like um I don't know about that then he asked her again and like she finally did it. Now they're married and living with Phil. But. Yeah, it's funny how like people just kind of show up because he's from Georgia. But he had been living in Fairbanks, I think, for like seven years up to that point. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, I, yeah. And it was just nice to meet somebody else from the South. You don't meet a lot of people from the South, you know, south yeah. of the Mason-Dixon line once you get up that far north because people down here don't like the cold. And so... Um, yeah, it was cool. So <laughs> that's awesome. I can't. So, what was Fairbanks like? I mean, so you moved there. Fairbanks was amazing. It was. It so Fairbanks is like to the t- Tibetans. Um, it's the crown chakra of the planet. And really, so, yeah. And so um, it attracts all these different kinds of people from all over the world. I mean, there were, and and every possible kind of art or music, um, theater, there was a, like a Shakespearean theater. Um, their university there has an amazing art department and museum, um, with artifacts and things. And then, um, there were, there was a symphony orchestra, two different steel drum bands, like you name it, you could find it there. And it was like, Anything you could have found in New York City or L.A. as far as art and music goes, it was there in this small city. There's like, I think when I was living there, there was like 60 to 70,000 people. So it was there. kind of like an Asheville. A little bit. Not as big, though. Not as big. And, and, and so most of the people lived outside of town. Um, the town itself is not very beautiful, architecturally speaking. Um, but... You know, it it just attracted just the most amazing people. Like, first Fridays were unbelievable because there's so many galleries there because there's so much art. It wow. Was, it was, like, the best date night ever. You could go to all these different galleries and have wine and cheese and look at, like, any kind of art you could possibly imagine. And um, so Is I had a lot all, of tourists. Yeah. Not as much as further south because it, it's just... It's cold. It's a little, and it's a stretch to get there, but... Um, I had, like, the most amazing group of 
like artists and contemporaries and peers like just I and I, I miss that part of my life um because I had so much like we would have you know there were Saturdays where I would get together with certain groups of artists and we would paint and make jewelry or whatever we were doing. Everybody would kind of do their own thing. We used to call it stitch and bitch and (laughs) everybody would bring their thing and we would just sit and do that. And, and so I had different clusters of, of artists and groups that I would meet with and, and do these kinds of things with. And, um, it was just highly motivating and inspiring all the time. It was really awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and and it's so, it's so dark there in the winter. Um, Yeah. So by this time in the winter, like sun's up by like ten ten thirty, down again by like three three thirty. Oh my god! And um, is that hard on you? Yes, that was harder than the cold. Like the cold is doable because it's so dry there. Um, It's basically an Arctic desert there, but. yeah, but the, I, the, but the, the darkness the just like seeps in. Uh, there was one winter out of all the winters that the ten years that I lived in Alaska, I had one winter. It was my first winter in Fairbanks, in fact, that I didn't leave Alaska for like a month and travel. And I remember walking into Nate's work, and I was totally addled and like on the verge of tears, didn't know why. I thought I was losing my mind. And he was like, welcome to Fairbanks in the wintertime, you know. And I was <laughs> like, great. So I didn't miss another trip after that. But, yeah, that was really, the darkness is really hard there. And it's kind of interesting. Nate went on a work trip one time down to Delta Junction, and he was in this bar. He came back. He's like, I had the weirdest experience in this bar. And this old man was sitting next to me. He's like, it really creeped me out because... It was like March when the sun starts coming back Mm -hmm. and it's still like 30 below and it's so cold. And so this old man looked at me and he was like, it's nothing like when the light starts coming back for you to see just how far in the dark you went. And, And March is like when people start losing their minds. In fact, we lost several friends to suicide over the years. Um, really? Usually between the months of March and April, and that's when people just start losing their minds. Because the sun is coming back? And it's just been so cold and dark. They just kind of lose it. It's crazy. Yeah. And if you look at the statistics, like... That, that's yeah, why crazy. I would never, I mean, I, I would love to visit Alaska. Alaska seems like the most amazing, yeah, like, I mean, and like it's almost magical like the there, temple of, Especially that far of, north with the Aurora, Aurora Borealis. Yeah, the Aurora Borealis, the best times when you're going to the outhouse at 3 a.m., you know, like, yeah. <laughs> it's freezing cold. And, and you look up and you're yeah. like, oh my God, this earth is your like amazing. warm because everybody puts a piece of, uh. Of, of foam insulation on, on the seat of the outhouse. Really? <laughs> your knees are freezing, but your butt's warm. <laughs> so funny. That's, that, that, that is just amazing to me. That The fact that you lived in Alaska is like, I've always wanted to go. I mean, and oh, I can't believe, it's amazing. And your stories are uh, so phenomenal like well, I need to do more I travel a lot well and that's still all you gotta trotter. do is flow by the seat of your pants and you know see where life leads you I mean really you're young you've got plenty of time I did a, a lot of my travels I did between the time I was 16 years old till I was about 36 and then kind of had to knuckle down a little bit once Oscar <laughs> was in school but, yeah <laughs> Um, you know, I feel like traveling is the best way for you to learn and grow and be like your most utter, like complete self. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. Cause you have to be, you ha- you have to really be a little bit vulnerable at times and, and most of the time because you, you're in foreign places. You don't know. Solving. Yeah, exactly. And, and part of that is connecting with people that you don't know and possibly in a culture you're completely foreign to and, you know, you may not speak the language and you may not eat the same foods and, you may, you know, and, and it's, it's sorting out the communication and, and, 
and seeing where you land and you also kind of see how you're all kind of you connect with people you become like more connected with I mean I'm such a people person but you know I but that's like one of the things I've I've always tell people because I I mean I travel a lot still and for thankfully my boyfriend's German so I can just go to Europe and I can have an excuse to go see his family but you know but You'd, hey, any excuse any, to travel is good. I know, any <laughs> excuse. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to Germany. I'm going to go see Simon's family. But, you know, you, like, learn how to problem solve and be able to talk to people and connect with people. Like, my favorite thing, I, I mean, I grew up here, and I've never rode public transportation ever alone. I mean, not, I've gone well, with my aunt. Well, yeah. it's not a thing in the United States, really, which is really unfortunate. Super un- <laughs> It's super unfortunate. I mean, God, what I'd love is to not drive a car and to just ride my bike or go on public transport for, you know, environmental reasons. But I was, I've always traveled with Simon. He, are, he knows, like, how to do all that because he lived in a city. But I was alone in London on my la- on my birthday, and oh, I was. Oh wow, that's cool. I, I was yeah. Simon had to go to the Turks because he was trying to get in the country. He's here now, but oh, like good. he couldn't. He as a German couldn't come to the states. He had to go to Canada, which he only could stay at the Canada airport and couldn't leave the airport. And then had to fly to the Turks and stay for two weeks, and then see if he could go back to the states. I was like the only way he could get in. It's like this whole thing, but he had to leave early. So I had three days alone in London by myself. Never does like he's usually. So I went to Camden Town by myself. I like looked on a map. I've, I had like my tracker. I had my maps and everything, my phone and wallet and everything, and walked through London by myself, got on the, the, the tube, which is yeah. the train, and was like, I guess I'm going to figure out how to use, how to, do public transport, you know, I had to get my ticket, swipe it in, make sure I was at the right oh, yeah. thing and everything, but I felt so proud of myself. You should be. It's, it, and Because the average person that I've met, especially around here, I feel like, and I don't want to, like, disparage or dog people here, you know, but I feel like the biggest thing standing between most people traveling is, is the fear of the unknown and, and trying to mm-hmm. sort out things that, you know, you've never done before. Yeah. But that's part of the fun. That's and, part and, of the fun. And then again, like you were saying, when you've done it and you're like, oh man, I totally did that. That's awesome. All right, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I felt so cocky. I was like, oh yeah, okay. I'm already walked around Camden Town. I've like, we got, I was lost for a little bit walking around, found myself back. Oh, there's a train station. Oh man, the train leaves in five minutes. Got to, I was like doing the whole thing. I felt like I was a Londoner by the end yeah, of that, awesome. end of that trip. I was like, Okay, I get off at this ex- then I get off of this bus, go down to north, go south. Yeah. <laughs> Oscar, I, it's funny that we're talking about travel because I was just thinking last night, um, he's going to be graduating. He's got three more years of school after this one. and sweet kid. If he does what he's wanting to do, which is to go to governor's school, he's going to be like super busy the summer between his junior and senior year and then the summer after his senior year. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to probably do a big trip. I want to take him out of the country. Um, we'll probably do that next summer is what I'm thinking. Not next summer, but the summer between his 10th and 11th grade year. And I'm kind of waiting to see where we've been talking about going to England. Cause I would like to, I think Go. that would be a good jumping off point for him. Cause he, you know, he, they speak the language. We all speak the same language. You know, it's a little bit different. The dialect is different in different places, but I think for him it would be a little bit less daunting for a first trip out of the country. You know, with my experience with Europe is the really good thing is is that European, like people who like Germany, for example, Everyone speaks English. Oh, yeah. When I was in Germany, I rarely had to use, use the German. German. I had my little phrase book in my pocket and everything. And they're like, oh, hello, how are you? Do you want to go? Like yeah. <laughs> the only time I really had to use it was talking to my friend's mom. Like, yeah, she yeah. She didn't speak really any English. And so at breakfast and stuff, because we were staying at her place, like I would, I would, 
attempt to speak German with her, which was always comical. Yeah, no, and Germans, Germans, Germans are very have very dry humor, and they're like, oh, okay, that's how you pronounced it. (laughs) It's so funny. People's like misconception of Germans is that they're all serious all the time, and it's like they're actually very funny people, and they know how they know how to party. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Party like they play hard and they work hard. You know, (laughs) work hard, play hard. That's a good way to go. And I, I had an absolute blast when I was there. Simon's parents are super they're it's dry humor that's like all I can explain it like sarcasm isn't really a thing I feel like it's just I more think that's like American that's very American <laughs> but it's like dry like literal like oh my gosh it's like so funny I I can't even deal like Simon just cracks a joke and I'm like that's really funny like I just <laughs> am like what <laughs> but his parents are like they're very stereotypical. Like, they're the bread and butter family with their cheeses, and they're, like, very snobby about bread, and the mom's, like, a doctor of anesthesia and, oh, like, wow, doctor. Cool. And then his dad's a doctor-in-law and, like, does law and everything, and they're they're hysterical. But I don't know if Susanna was telling me this as a joke. I still don't know to this day. <laughs> I, I feel like it, it – I don't know. But I was sitting in the – in their living room it was the first time I met them and she was looking through a catalog I don't know who reads catalogs anymore but she was reading through a catalog and we were sitting there and watching German television and I was like alone like you know on the couch just watching and not knowing what was going on she goes you know Lily I don't think yellow is your color <laughs> I was like you are right about that but damn Susanna what the heck I was like <laughs> <laughs> There's no no beating around the bush there. Yeah, that's hilarious. Well, I'm probably gonna have to go here in a minute, but um, oh yeah. Did you have anything you wanted else you wanted to ask before I go? And no, we'll we'll wrap it up here with a funny German story. Yeah. But it's no so great to have you on here. I've I've had such a fun time talking with you. You are such a wonderful person. Oh, and you. I feel um, the same way about you. Thank you so much, Jen. And we'll have to maybe do another one soon. But we're going to wrap it up here. You want to say bye, Jen? Bye.